0: listening to World Talk Radio where the world comes to talk.
1: Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Our guest today is history professor Brian C. Melton, author of Sherman's Forgotten General. It's the story of a man who went to West Point, led a regiment at Bull Run, a brigade on the peninsula, a division at Antietam, a corps at Chancellorsville, and the right wing of the Army of the Potomac at Gettysburg. He went on to corps command under Sherman during the march to the sea and was a prominent businessman after the war. Who was this man called Sherman's forgotten general? I can't remember, but author Brian Melton can, and we'll ask him on Civil War Talk Radio.
0: programming tools.
2: Websites powered by Avalar feature capabilities that attract more customers and enhance relationships with existing customers.
0: Avalar offers a multitude of leading-edge solutions, including lead generation and referral tracking, shopping carts and payment processing, membership management, and search engine optimization, to name a few.
2: Take advantage of the full power of the Internet using Avalar technology at www.avalar.com.
0: That's A-V-A-L-A-R.com. World Talk Radio, bringing the
1: world to you. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from Greenville, North Carolina. Not on the campus of East Carolina University this week, where I normally would be, because it's the last day of summer session of the beginning of 2007 and I'm happy to report I've finished grading all the final exams and work is done for the session the Sun is shining beautifully outside the leaves are beautiful the trees are beautiful as, as James Thurber once wrote uh, after going to the dentist in New York City he walked outside and said the sun was beautiful the clouds are beautiful the slush dirty gray slush in the streets is beautiful after you've finished an ordeal everything looks good and so it is today it really is beautiful out but finishing the last final exam is a a glorious moment it's particularly so uh, for teaching the summer session at at most schools uh, that I've been associated with and, and at East Carolina University the summer Uh, semester is shorter than the regular semester, and in this case, I just finished teaching a course on the Civil War that lasted exactly 25 uh, class days, all consecutive. So it's packed in a very short amount of time. Rather than meeting two or three times a week, you meet five times a week for a longer than average session. It's as many class hours as a regular semester jammed into uh, barely more than a month. How does one teach the story of the Civil war in twenty five meetings uh, there there's so many things you can say the the problem of compression of selection becomes uh, really a challenge in this kind of circumstance, particularly given that that i I like to start in sixteen o seven with Jamestown and at least lay the foundations for cultural differences between the northern and southern colonies and Uh, following the syllabus work our way through the pre-war, the war, and then the Reconstruction era, you obviously can't tell everything. You can't even begin to hope to tell every important story. So it really requires a great deal of selection, and uh, I'm sure no two professors would teach it the same way. One of my colleagues I know uh, pretty much gets to Fort Sumter on day two and rarely gets to Appomattox whereas I spend only a third of the course on the war itself. Uh, we all have our different approaches. And perhaps uh, our, our guest will share his uh, today. But while I'm rambling on this subject, let me add that one of the real pleasures of teaching uh, about the Civil War and about any subject is learning uh, from the students, not just teaching them. It is amazing what people bring to the classroom uh, in the last two times I've taught the course, uh, to give examples, I had as a student one semester a captain, a, a former captain in the U.S. Army's ceremonial horse cavalry unit. So when we began talking about cavalry tactics, he could speak much more authoritatively than I could on the psychology of horses as herd animals, uh, how you get a column of fours to turn one way or the other. Uh, how you train mounts to to act, uh, how a charge works. It it never occurred to me I would be discussing cavalry tactics and have someone raise his hand and say, oh, I'm in the cavalry, and be able to teach me about it. Uh, This past semester, as we discussed the economics of the post-war era in the South, the student volunteers that his family until very recently were sharecroppers on the land of the governor of North Carolina in the early 20th century, the Acock family, and that he he himself had had done that kind of work and could talk about sharecropping and the economy and the the social environment that it creates uh, in a way that that books don't convey. Uh, He was someone with experience of the institution who could talk about it and, and, uh, and teach me about it. So while I'm delighted that finals are done, the books are graded, I can uh, spend a few days recovering before resuming whatever uh, next project I take on. At the same time, uh, I I, I don't begrudge the the hour's teaching. It's it's the best part of the job. and uh, What one learns from it is is surprising in many cases. Well, enough of my... uh, Teaching. Let's talk uh, with our guest today, who is himself a teacher, a history professor at uh, Liberty University in Lynchburg, Virginia. And uh, well, let me talk a little more before I, I, I bring our, our guest on, if I might. Liberty University, as, as many listeners will know, was the institution founded by the late Jerry Falwell, uh, a Baptist university uh, with a very strong ideological uh, religious commitment. I met our guest when I was invited to speak there at a Civil War seminar, not officially sponsored by the university, I gather, but by uh, a group of Civil War enthusiasts uh, related to the university or or in the area. And uh, They were, I think, taken aback by my my Yankee ramblings. Uh, It was not quite what they were hoping for, perhaps. I think the theme was Lincoln's war crimes, and I didn't really deliver what they were looking for. But... Before going there, I I had some talk with some of my colleagues. Should I even accept an invitation to speak at uh, a place apparently so politicized as Liberty University? Or or is is that a mistake? And my conclusion was that I should. The whole point of the academic enterprise is to engage in this kind of discourse, uh, not to presume people agree or disagree with you, but to to talk to any audience that wants to hear you and, and to listen to them in return. And I was very glad I did, in large part because of the fascinating conversation I had with Professor Brian Melton while I was there. And that's our guest today. Uh, Brian, are are you on the line? Yes, I am. Uh, wonderful. Uh, first, uh, my condolences on the, the recent death of the founder of your, your institution. Uh, Thank you. And uh, as, as I said, uh, we met there a couple of years ago now at a, a conference. And I was very glad I went to it because uh, I thought you and I had a very interesting talk about approaches to history. How did you uh, find your way to Liberty University?
0: Uh, well, it's actually a, a very practical, uh, very practical motivation. Uh, I was finishing up my last few uh, classes in my PhD work at Texas Christian with Dr. Stephen Woodworth, and my wife got pregnant, and uh, that, that happens, you pushes know. you into the job hunt. <laughs> uh, in a way that nothing else will. So, uh, I applied to a number of different places, and Liberty was one of them. And uh, I was lucky enough to get a call from Dr. Roger Schultz, the dean, the now the dean at uh, at Liberty, then the chair of the department of history. And uh, I've enjoyed it very much since I've been there. Uh, I think a lot of people make uh, assumptions about what the, like you said yourself, what the atmosphere must be like at Liberty. And I, I can truthfully say that uh, I haven't. I haven't felt that uh, kind of politicized atmosphere. it is a, a university with a with a mission and it was founded for a purpose, but at the same time I've never felt any pressure one way or the other so, so uh, it's been a it's been a really great experience and uh, lots of supportive faculty
1: well let's talk about that because I think this is a good good uh, venue to discuss that and, and certainly it certainly was a question I had when I went there and I, on the one hand you the group that I spoke to uh, that was presenting uh, the, the, the Lincoln's war crimes issue. That was not the history department. No, sir, that was not. Uh, what was that group?
0: That is is the—that uh, is a Civil War seminar group that's made up of several members of the university and a board from outside the university. Um, I think what they were trying to do, previously they had done a hypothetical scenario of what if Robert E. Lee had gone to trial. Ah. And they were trying to balance it out with what if... Abraham Lincoln had gone to trial. Uh, And I have to admit that uh, I was not a part of the planning of of that particular one. Uh, I would have had some things to say myself Uh uh, if I had, and uh, I'm kind of hoping people forget about that particular seminar. The ones that we've had since then are certainly much more worthwhile. What what other topics has has that seminar explored? Uh, They've also explored Civil War art. Uh, This past year we did uh, Robert E. Lee in Life and Legend, um and we'll see what happens in the future. I I have to admit I wasn't I wasn't a part of much before then because I didn't get hired until four years ago. Mm-hmm. But they've been going for some time now. So that whereas that uh, the
1: the Lincoln on trial represents maybe the, the the caricature the public might have of uh of civil war enthusiasts perhaps throughout the South, not certainly not limited to Lynchburg, Virginia. Um
0: I would definitely say so, and I think that unfortunately shaped the tenor. You know, I know knowing the men who put it together, it wasn't supposed to be an act, an activity in neo Confederate fantasy. Mm-hmm. Um, that was not what they intended. But when, of course, you put something like that out there, you're definitely definitely going to get that element that really wanted to see this happen and see it go a certain way. Uh, and I think that can shape, uh, of course, the way things went. Well, I will say it was
1: it was a very interesting event. Um, uh, I, I enjoyed giving a talk. Uh, to Charlie, uh, oh, I'm having a sudden blank. Uh, my, my good friend from, from Lincoln Memorial University, uh, the well-known Civil War diplomatic historian, and this happens when I. Do the show on Friday afternoon, and suddenly someone's like I wish
0: I could yes. help you, but I'm in the same boat. Just uh, finished it, it, our finishing whoa. up three other uh, <laughs> three other classes. so I'm, well, I'm, it, I'm drawing a blank too. It, it'll
1: come to me in the minute we're done. We we had a uh, 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 we both received very you know cordial receptions, and and although our talks did not fulfill the neo Confederate fantasy, I, I still thought people were very. Uh, receptive and and it was an interesting time but let me ask you more about your teaching there and the students uh, in particular and and we're maybe going over some ground you and I talked about privately but I thought that was so interesting we could share it with the listeners what what do you find in the student body at Liberty compared to what you've experienced in your graduate or undergraduate years
0: well I find them in some ways to be very similar there are some absolutely brilliant students and then you have some that uh, need some help. Uh, there, uh, <clears throat> some of the, uh, again you get this kind of stereotype of a place like Liberty is one massive ball of political motivation, but it's certainly not that at all. Uh, and you don't get that from the students. Just like anywhere else, there are students who are very politically active, but a lot of them simply are there to uh, to work on their degree. And the ones that I work with in the history department uh, are indeed some some of the best students that I've ever encountered in my uh, in my graduate work or uh, teaching elsewhere. And I very much enjoy working with them. One of the things that, that interested me about about this is that when you,
1: I guess the the word that came up in our conversation was the issue of, of providentialism. That ah. What do you do with, with a student who answers on a final exam
0: what were the uh, uh, major causes of the Civil War? And they write, it was God's will. Well, uh, I think for the first thing I'd point out is I have never seen anything remotely like that while at Liberty. Okay. Uh, uh, Liberty, as particularly in the history department, we're trying to promote, uh, I guess, what you call an older brand of uh, Christian intellectualism that is not that sort of "God said it, I believe it, that settles it." To a certain extent, that you know, that uh, I think that that, uh, that that pure faith-based approach. Can be legitimate for some people, but that's not what I think Christianity calls us to do. We're called to believe in in a reasonable faith, and I think that's what the history department tries to promote. In fact, uh, I teach the uh, I teach the introduction to the study of history class, where we sort of a primer on how to be a good history student, and eventually move on, hopefully, to graduate school. And one of the things I do in that class is uh, spend quite a bit of time uh, settling issues of providentialism. Uh, because I think there's a definite difference between what we as human beings with a finite, limited mind know God knows and what we can grasp. Therefore, even if, uh, speaking hypothetically, even if uh, I don't believe in God or I do believe in God and he's up there somewhere and I accept that he has a plan for this world and that he is overseeing things, then that doesn't necessarily mean that every little thing that goes on is the specific will of God, and I can find it out by like laying God out on the psychiatrist's couch. Um, there's sort of this assumption, you know, that people want to ask questions like, "Well, why did God cause World War II?" And I think the historian's answer has to be, "I have no idea," and we could never find out that kind of, we could never find out the answer to that kind of question. So what we have to do is limit ourselves to things that our finite mind can uh, can grasp. Uh, the evidence, the artifacts from the past, that allow us to reconstruct an image of what things were like and what things had occurred before. If that makes any sense whatsoever.
1: Well, that, that does. And it, it you know, I, I you said you've never gotten an answer like that. I I occasionally do get answers. Uh, On the final I was grading today, one of the questions was uh, uh, who won the Civil War? In in, who won and who lost the Civil War? In a a large sense, and I got some very interesting answers, uh, very creative ones and thoughtful ones. But occasionally, uh, I will get students who will say, "Well, I believe everything works out for the best, so the country won the Civil War. Overall, it must have been for the for the best." I've also phrased the question: Was the Civil War a good thing? Which which kind of stretches the student's understanding sometimes of it, and sometimes I'll get this answer that is uh, based on, on a not necessarily a religious faith, but but a, a sort of uh, optimism that everything works out for the best. Therefore, uh, the Civil War must have been for the best too. Right. And that really does limit uh, uh, analysis. The the music is playing in the background already, which means we have to take a little break. But we're going to come back and answer the burning question of who was Sherman's Forgotten General when we return in just a moment on Civil War Talk Radio. With the show, with we started the show with who was General Sherman's forgotten general? We'll ask our guest Brian C. Melton, author of Sherman's Forgotten General, when we return on Civil War Talk Radio.
2: you got a small business, well, then you know how tough it can be. You know, marketing, finding new customers, and especially just staying focused on the day-to-day details of running your business. Well, even though my business was doing okay, it wasn't where I knew it could be. I was getting a bit discouraged. Then I heard about this little book called Growing Your Business by Mark LeBlanc. Wow, I still can't figure out how such a small book could make such a big difference in my business. It only took about an hour to read, and the things I learned, well, all I can say is I'll be using Mark's ideas for a long time to come. Why? Because they work, I learned how to really focus on what I need to do to attract more customers and how to be more successful by creating a plan for generating more business. I guess that's why Mark named his website SmallBusinessSuccess.com. Clever, huh? Small Business Success. That's it. If you want to be more successful with your business, and who doesn't, you should check out Mark LeBlanc's website at SmallBusinessSuccess.com. You'll find Mark's books and lots of other resources for growing your business. SmallBusinessSuccess.com World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you.
1: Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Brian Melton, author of Sherman's Forgotten General. Uh, in our first segment, we talked a little bit about Uh, Professor Melton's experiences at Liberty University where he and I met at a seminar a few years ago Uh, and we're talking more generally about uh, uh, history students and how they uh, interpret the Civil War and uh, well Brian I I appreciate your your thoughts you shared with us there in the first segment I think it's an interesting uh, certainly an interesting question students do approach the Civil War differently whether both depending on the the nature of the institution they're in, but also where it 's in, That's certainly I found teaching in Indiana and teaching in North Carolina are two very different things when it comes to the civil war did, did you again you, you were a graduate student in Texas. Uh, do you see a difference there
0: well i didn 't get the chance to teach civil war in Texas, uh, but liberty is the kind of school that draws students from all over the world um, and certainly all over the country, and you can definitely see a difference between how they react based on where they're from. Uh, a lot of Southerners, of course, approach the Civil War with almost a religious meaning. And I mean that completely apart from the other issues we were talking about earlier. It's like they, they have this devotion to it, this interest in it, that goes beyond just passive, objective concern for the truth. Uh, and then, of course, there are other individuals uh, from uh, from the North and the West uh, who were just mystified by this. Uh, my wife is from Idaho originally, and I grew up in South Georgia. And so when we talked about the Civil War, she was just amazed at how big a thing this was to me when, I, when we were going through college. Uh, as far as she was concerned, from the West, it wasn't a big deal at all. It's just an, another epic of history that uh, didn't per- didn't particularly matter more or less than others. And I think you can really see that uh, in the way the students act and react and interact in class, uh, and the amount of passion they put into their studies.
1: Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. It's one of the nice things about teaching Civil War is you often have a large percentage of very committed students. Oh yes. Uh, As one of my students wrote on the final today, uh, people still identify themselves as Northerners or Southerners. No one identifies themselves as Loyalists or Whigs anymore. Uh, past wars don't have this this resonance in the present uh, that the Civil War does. I thought that was an interesting uh, yeah, comparison. I
0: mean, I certainly, uh, think it's very true.
1: Yes. Well, we've we've held the audience in suspense long enough. Let's talk about uh, your your excellent biography of Sherman's forgotten general.
0: Who was he, and why was he forgotten? Yeah, well. Um, I think probably the main reason he was forgotten. Uh, you gave us a you give us a good synopsis at the very beginning of the uh, of the program, as to who he was, why he was forgotten. I think probably because there's so little out there on him to work with. Well, I haven't even mentioned his name yet, so you get
1: to do that. Okay. Uh, Henry W. Slocum. There we All go, right, Slocum. Now, now,
0: now, now we're moving forward. <laughs> you can tell I'm I'm an old hat at this. Yes. yes. <laughs> uh, uh, Slocum uh, was a. Uh, New York, uh, man, uh, he, he was a soldier and a businessman before the war. He entered the war during, Bull, uh, uh, with the Bull Run campaign, was wounded at Bull Run, had a quick rise through the ranks to Major General where he took command of the 12th Corps, which was uh, the smallest in the Army of the Potomac, stayed with the 12th Corps, uh, all the way up through Gettysburg after which he was transferred west to, uh, serve under Hooker uh, when Hooker took the 11th and 12th Corps out to aid uh, Grant in freeing Rosecrans after Chattanooga. Uh, he had a long-standing feud with Hooker, which uh, landed him uh, in Vicksburg, actually, uh, for uh, about six months after that. Then he came back to take Hooker's place uh, with the Atlanta campaign. Uh, after the Atlanta campaign, he was put in, com- in command of Atlanta, where he prepared the city for uh, its uh, eventual destruction, and then afterwards, he took command of the Army of Georgia, the, four, the two corps on the left wing of Sherman's army for the March to the Sea. So uh, you sort of call him Sherman's left-hand man. Uh, he worked very. He and Howard both worked very closely with Sherman on the March to the Sea and the March through the Carolinas. He fought the last significant battle uh, of the Eastern Theater at Bentonville, uh, at least the first half of it. And uh, then stood to uh, stood to accept uh, Johnston's surrender surrender at the Bennett Place. After the war, let me just step in here. This
1: he's had a remarkable wartime career. Then,
0: yes, Uh, uh, he's one of of only probably about a dozen men out of a million in Union Blue to actually make it to Army command.
1: And yet, for all this, your biography is the first one written of him. At least in the 20th century.
0: Uh, Well, uh, I'd say 21st century. Of course, that's not too hard. Oh, that's right. Uh, Okay. uh, 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 There have been two other biographies that were written of him. Both predate the First World War. And neither of them are really scholarly. So why hasn't anyone written about him? I think a lot of that has to do with uh, the scarcity of information on Slocum. Uh, When I started trying to dig stuff up on him, I found out that, unlike a lot of other Civil War generals, and I think this had to do with sort of the mythology of Civil War memory that we've been talking about, you know, sort of referencing as we go along, when you had someone like Slocum or like Howard or like Sherman, uh, even if they didn't reach the godlike status of somebody like Washington, their family and everybody seemed to hold on to everything that they uh, that they had once owned, and that eventually migrates its way into places like the National Archives. Well, I was not able to find any collected papers of Henry Slocum. I know they existed because I found out in his will he left them to his son, but they're just not out there. Uh, and so as far as primary sources on Slocum go, there are very, very few when you compare them with, uh, obviously, people like Sherman. and They had to be scraped together from uh, archives from all over the country. You mentioned
1: in your introduction you could almost write a book on places that don't have Slocum papers.
0: Right. Uh, places that would seem to be the most obvious places to look. Where, where did well, you look? Well, the Slocum papers in uh, the National Archives. Those were actually donated to the National Archives by the one identifiable relation, uh, Mr. John Slocum of, ironically, Lynchburg, Virginia. Uh, and. He didn't have any of the papers that related to Henry. He had papers that related to, his, to uh, some of his brothers, but nothing that related to Henry. Uh, he, Slocum resided in Brooklyn, New York, for uh, the remainder of his life after the war. And so you go and check places like the New York Historical Society and uh, the New York State Library and uh, the Brooklyn Historical Society, and there's nothing. Uh, I found in the Brooklyn Historical Society... One after battle report uh, from uh, that, that was already available in the official records. Uh, when I uh, I did I did get some some good stuff from the New York Historical Society, but still only about a dozen letters uh, that were spaced out over the whole course of the war. So you just don't have the sheer mass of information that you would find with a lot of other personalities.
1: I think one of. Uh... Slocum's division commanders, uh, Alpheus Williams, left uh, a huge amount of, of letters behind, which have been published, uh, where he apparently was writing two or three letters a day on top of his, his, his work. Uh, is it possible Slocum just didn't write anything?
0: I, I don't think so, uh, because I have found references to letters he wrote to Sherman after the war. Uh, and some of those letters were published in one of the previous biographies. And I found one letter that he actually did write to Sherman, so he was writing. And there are references to letters that he wrote during the war, like some he, that he wrote to his wife, that I found in the previous published biographies, but cannot have not been able to find the letters themselves. I even got so desperate during the research phase that I went on to Yahoo and looked up, used the people search to find every Henry Slocum in America, and I mailed letters to every Henry Slocum on the offhand chance maybe one of you guys has this and you'd be willing to share it with me. And of course, none of them responded. Hmm. So, how many how
1: many Henry Slocums were there?
0: There were about a dozen.
1: Not too many. Not not an outrageous amount, but still a, uh, uh, a, a, a you have to fire shots in the dark sometime to to see what turns up. So so here's a guy with no sources.
0: Do you suppose uh, maybe family members destroyed these papers at some point? That's possible, uh, but unfortunately that's completely uh, it's complete speculation on, on my part. Uh, I know all of his war memorabilia went to his son Henry Jr., who was a national tennis champion at one point, but then after that they seemed to disappear. Uh, they were used to put together... Uh, the first of his biographies by uh, by George Fox, uh, which they put together as sort of a summary for the dedication of the Slocum Memorial at Gettysburg. But then, other than what Fox prints, it's they're, they're simply not there. The primary sources aren't. I've been able to find, of course, a wealth of secondary sources. Is, but, is
1: that Fox the same as the regimental losses author?
0: Yes, it is. Okay, so so people
1: listening to this program will perhaps be familiar with. with Regiment, what is it called? Regimental losses in the Civil War. I believe so. Something like that. It's a very interesting book of statistics on, on Union units. Um, uh, very much worth worth using as a reference. So, so there are a few secondary sources, but really we have little material. So that's one reason no one's written about uh, about General Slocum. Now his career certainly though has a lot. Uh, so he started out at Bull Run. He's commanding a volunteer regiment there. And he was wounded, um, not enough to. In your book, you say, as wounds go, this is the kind of wound to get. Uh, right. What do you mean by that?
0: Well, it's uh, it was one that kept him out. Um, it sort of kept him out of action for a while. Put him in the public eye. You know, he uh, he became famous as one of the, or semi-famous as one of the wounded from uh, from Bull Run. Uh, meant that the politicians began to call uh, from New York. Uh, but at the same time, it was not a serious enough wound that it permanently debilitated him. So when he comes back, uh, partially, I-, I believe, because of the wound, uh, he is he begins his pr- his pr- rise in promotions. While he's wounded, uh, the New York uh, the New York legislatures are putting forth his name for uh, brigade command, and of course, when he comes back, he takes it.
1: So he gets a brigade to command in the Peninsular Campaign. Uh, what kind of action did he see there?
0: Well, he goes from uh, on, in the Peninsula Campaign. He goes from brigade uh, all the way up to uh, division. Uh, in fact, he doesn't actually see much, if any, action at the, at the level of brigade because when William Franklin gets promoted, uh, uh, Slocum takes command of his division. Uh. He, he saw some heavy action in the uh, in the Peninsula. He was involved in uh, McClellan's sort of belated attempts to outflank uh, Johnston. While he was retreating up the uh, peninsula at Eltham's Landing, uh, then he Once they get outside, uh, once they get outside Richmond, uh, I, I don't. Uh, depending on what he, I don't know what his perspective would be. He either had a lot of good luck or a lot of bad luck because he was north of the river for Seven Pines and south of the river for Mechanicsville. So he's shifting back and forth and just happens to be in the right place at the right time to avoid battle. But then at, uh, at Glenville, uh, he is sorry Glendale, he is sent back across sorry I am having a hard time here. Uh, Gaines Mill. Uh, I shouldn't have graded so many papers before calling you. Uh, <laughs> well, the there's, there's, pass mail exams here. You're, you're good here uh, at Gaines Mill, he goes back across the river to uh, to help Fitz John Porter. But as it would have it, falls ill violently ill and can't act- can't actively command his division. And then he fights all the way back while he is ill through the seven days until he gets back to Harrison's Landing. So he saw very saw very heavy action during the hev- dur- during the seven days.
1: And from there, now he, by this time he's got a division to command, and he he continues to command a division through the Antietam campaign.
0: Yes, uh, the Antietam campaign. Uh, he is—he uh, actively takes Crampton's Gap while Franklin is still trying to decide whether he's going to attack on one side or the other. Uh, that's actually an interesting uh, study there too, because uh, Joseph J. Bartlett, who starts off as Slocum's one of Slocum's officers in the 27th New York, sort of follows behind him in his promotional ladder. Uh, every time Slocum gets promoted, Bartlett uh, gets promoted into the into the position that. Uh, that Slocum uh, had occupied before. And Bartlett gives two diametrically opposed um, accounts of what happens uh, at Crampton's Gap. In his official report, he is praising Slocum, says, Ed, this worked absolutely perfectly. It was an amazing textbook maneuver. and It was all because of Slocum's good management and good sense. And then way on down the line in 18, the 1890s, he completely revises that and has Slocum sitting out behind a bar and smoking cigars with Franklin, not sure what he's going to do or whether he should do anything, and basically saying, Hey, Bartlett, why don't you take care of it? (laughs) Uh, Somehow I I tend to think that the uh, earlier one was probably the more honest of the two. Uh,
1: But wouldn't the motivation be otherwise that that Bartlett, I mean, he's not going to criticize his boss in a public writing.
0: Well, I thought I, I... I think that's probably true, uh, but at the same time, this account later is also a very public writing. Ah. After Slocum, uh, it was for a newspaper account, and it was after Slocum had destroyed his national reputation by becoming a Democrat. Ah. So, if anything, uh, Bartlett may have had even more uh, reason for uh, for embarrassing him later I than he would be, than he would at the time. So, now, Ed, he,
1: uh, Slocum does encounter heavy fighting at Antietam. He's on the battlefield.
0: He is on the battlefield, but he doesn't actually fight in fact uh, oh, he he's uh, notable as uh, one of the uh, one of the powerful formations that uh, McClellan had on the on the field that he could have thrown at Lee. Um, they want uh, he, he was one that wanted to go forward uh, well several of them wanted to go forward, uh, but McClellan wouldn't allow them uh, now Slocum uh, thought that he was doing a great job. Holding in check this powerful formation of enemy troops, uh, which, of course, we know from Antietam, there certainly weren't any on the Confederate left by that time. Which I think kind of brings in another aspect of Slocum that we haven't talked about yet: is the fact that the fact that he seems to mirror uh, the personalities of his commanding officers. Um, and I'm not sure. What, I'm not sure. What, uh, i su- not sure if that would be there'd be a psychological precedent for that, but. When he's under McClellan, he seems to act very McClellan-like. When he's under Hooker, he tends to act like Hooker. And then finally, when he's under Sherman, he's under somebody who's, like you say, worth, uh, worth copying, and he does good service. So while he's with McClellan, he, you, see, you tend to see him echoing things that McClellan says. So McClellan in Antietam says that uh, he's you know, just barely able to hold off the massive Confederate hordes that are waiting to sweep across the the creek and annihilate him, and Slocum seems to uh, seems to echo that as well. So he's kind of a military chameleon. He just takes on yeah. a coloration. Yeah, that, that, that would be that would be an excellent uh, excellent way of putting it. I think.
1: Interesting.
0: The uh, the phrase that I used was sort of a uh, sort of a dynamic version of Locke's blank slate. Um, he had. A, I'm not trying to say, of course, that he didn't have his own personality or his own quirks. But at the same time, he tends to reflect whatever his commander is uh, offering him. So that accounts for the the, uh,
1: conservative tactics at Antietam. Uh, His next commander will be Hooker. We'll take another short break, but we'll find out if Slocum's life gets more interesting uh, under the the, uh, much more dynamic style of fighting Joe Hooker when he takes over the Army of the Potomac in 1863. That's what we'll discuss with our guest today, Brian Melton, when we come back in just a moment on Civil War Talk Radio. the prism through which the entire civil war is viewed general slocum's performance at gettysburg thus becomes the one thing people haven't forgotten about him is that fair we'll talk to the author of slocum's biography sherman's forgotten general when we return on civil war talk radio
2: It's the one level playing field in business. The Internet, it's where an artisan working out of a small shop can look bigger than a multinational corporation. But to achieve this level of visibility, your company's website needs a developer who knows the net and how to make it work. Your company needs APSIO. APSIO's success comes from producing websites that reflect the attitudes and uniqueness of their respective organizations. Make a great first impression on the web. Choose APSIO. A-P-S-Y-O. For more info, visit www.apsio.com.
1: Listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Brian C. Melton, the author of *Sherman's Forgotten General*, a biography of Henry Slocum, who commanded the Union 12th Corps at Gettysburg and then uh, a large. Portion of Sherman's army on the march to the sea and the march to the Carolinas. Before we get there, though, we're, we're going through uh, Slocum's very interesting career, uh, so interesting that it does raise the question why hasn't anyone else written a biography of Slocum, which we discussed in our last segment? One reason being the, the absolute scarcity of sources on the man. But one of the fascinating things that this biography uh, talks about is Slocum's reflective personality, his tendency to take on the military characteristics of whoever he was serving under. Uh, thus, under McClellan on the peninsula and at Antietam, he is cautious, hoarding his troops, not willing to commit them. After Hooker takes over the Army of the Potomac, does, uh, does Slocum begin drinking heavily and
0: whoring around? Uh, what happens next? Well, certainly not that, but uh, he does seem to take on a more aggressive persona. In fact, well, from the beginning, Slocum and Hooker seem to be on kind of shaky grounds with each other. Uh, Slocum um, wasn't really isn't really clear explicit about what he thought of Hooker beforehand, but when he hears Hooker's been appointed to command of the army, he goes and have a, has a private meeting with Hooker, and comes out saying that his his uh, confidence in Hooker has greatly increased and that he's willing to follow him, uh, which of course implies that he probably didn't have a very high opinion of him beforehand. Uh, mm-hmm. He specifically mentions uh, that uh, one of the reasons why he dislikes Hooker is because of Hooker's uh, politicking behind the behind the lines against Burnside, uh, trying to have Burnside removed. Well, in the very beginning parts, uh, the beginning of the campaign, Slocum also seems to be as energetic as Hooker is. He uh, executes his portions of the plan, uh, which included he was included in the uh, the flanking march around Lee's left. Uh, does that with energy and with poise, and then just seems to all seems to be kind of in shock when he finds out that Hooker does not intend to continue the advance. Slocum and a lot of the other commanders expected, you know, they're supposed to get across the river, get through the wilderness, and come sweeping down on Lee, while Sedgwick holds them at Fredericksburg. But then they don't do it. They just sit down and start digging, uh, start digging trenches. Uh, and then as a result of the failure at chancellorsville Uh, slocum unfortunately begins to exhibit another aspect of of uh, hooker's personality and that is the very politicking that slocum previously condemned uh he is active and and one of the central members of the cabal that tries to have hooker removed Uh, and then after that he simply refuses to work with hooker anymore period which I think is rather inter- rather interesting, considering his previous views on that kind of skullduggery. So, so he
1: he's not a fan of Hooker. They, they become open enemies eventually.
0: Oh yes, bitter enemies till the end of the war. Well, Slocum is very bitter towards Hooker. Hooker does not seem to to, to harbor the same amount of animosity towards Slocum. Hooker seems to be willing to work with Slocum, but Slocum will not work with Hooker. When
1: when 11th uh, Corps and 12th Corps are sent out west, uh, Slocum uh, and, and Howard's Corps are sent west in 1863. The, uh, Hooker is in charge of this movement, and that means Slocum is serving under Hooker again after Gettysburg.
0: Well, yes, but he the Fireworks to...
1: begin to explode. It, so at that point, he's just writing openly. I, I don't actually. He offers to
0: resign, I believe. He does on several occasions. Uh the minute he he first hears about hooker's appointment when hooker sends him orders and in the in the orders that hooker sends they're very detailed very expl- you know, very fully explanatory It's almost like hooker doesn't trust him to even be able to move his core now looking at it since they went to both went to both Howard and Slocum if, hooker, if hooker's mad at anybody and, and worried about anybody he's probably worried about Howard but Slocum sees this, is infuriated, immediately writes his letter of resignation and sends it in, and depart, set, he sets the 12th Corps moving west, and he goes the opposite direction and heads to Washington to uh, see through his uh, resignation, which uh, I think is interesting, but those, he doesn't tell Hooker any of that. Hooker has no idea where Slocum is, or even where the 12th Corps is while it's moving west. Uh, and those kinds of ac- actions make me tend to think that When Slocum submitted that resignation, he was deadly serious about it. He did not expect to go back. Uh, Otherwise, he was going to have to face uh, some of the consequences of what amounted to insubordination and irresponsibility. When he goes to Washington, is he planning to meet with the president? Yes, he does schedule a a meeting with the president. Uh, He lays it out and offers his resignation. He had already met with Lincoln once before uh, by by a special meeting. Slocum, of course, is a New Yorker, and he uses his connections with William Seward to get some of these uh, get some of these meetings.
1: You, you mentioned at one point he gets a bouquet of flowers from Mary Lincoln. Yes, he does, and that's and he what... writes to his wife. Uh, Mary sent flowers, like like he's on a first name basis with her.
0: Yes, he said uh, I, th- I I thought Mary would remember me, uh, and that is another one of those mysteries about that still exist about Slocum. I was not able to find anything else about this besides that one letter, but apparently they had met and known each other at an earlier time. And when the Lincolns visited the Army after Chancellorsville, Mary Todd did not speak to Slocum. And he apparently, you can tell from the context of the letter, that he had written an earlier letter to his wife Clara, uh, venting his frustrations about that. And then later on, the bouquet of flowers comes, and he says, Ah, so she did did remember me, and she's apologizing. Uh, but then nothing else is said of it, uh, either in his uh, either in his conversations with Lincoln or uh, in what Lincoln has to say about Slocum.
1: So, so we can presume then his, his ability to get a meeting with Lincoln must be, you know, perhaps influenced by by there's some personal
0: connection to the first family. There, it is very possible, uh, but tracing the paper trail, it goes through it goes through William Seward. Hmm. Now, and another
1: thing about this meeting, there, there's a, a note Lincoln once wrote to Rosecrans after some resignation, I won't serve under so-and-so kind of thing. And Lincoln writes back and says, to tell the truth, I don't appreciate this matter of rank as you generals do. Uh, he's saying, you know, you guys are acting like little boys. I won't play with him. I won't play with him. Just everybody serve your country and serve under whoever I tell you. Uh, that, that's Lincoln's usual response when somebody's on his high horse about matters of seniority. But when Slocum says, I don't ever want to serve with Hooker, Lincoln
0: says, okay. Yeah, essentially, he uh, does his best to placate him. Uh, he, in, You can almost get the feeling that Lincoln is talking very slowly to Slocum, doesn't want him to miss anything or misunderstand <laughs> anything. He writes a long letter to Rosecrans, doing everything but specifically ordering him, when Slocum gets there, take him out from under, hooker's command and uh, unfortunately for Slocum when he he says okay fine I'll go ahead and go and serve in uh, serve in Tennessee he gets out there and Rosecrans is still acting like as Lincoln said a duck hit on the head and he doesn't do anything about it Slocum starts trying to follow Rosecrans and get in get meetings with him and Rosecrans seems to be avoiding him uh, using various and sundry excuses like he doesn't want an eastern general serving over western men which ironically is one of the things at the end of the war Slocum is proudest of uh, when he toasts his men in the 20th Corps uh, in, and the uh, the Army of Georgia, is that they were a hybrid command of Eastern and Western men, and they had done their work very well.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So uh, Slocum has a number of interesting appointments
1: as uh, sort of the military governor uh, of, of the garrison at First Tullahoma, Tennessee, and then later at Vicksburg. And if we have time, I'd like to get back to that. But let me ask you: uh, to the extent there's a 64 hour question about General Slocum, the, the one thing that he's not forgotten for that the listeners of this program all would think of uh, it would be his performance at Gettysburg, commanding the 12th Corps. uh yes. And the, the, to the extent he has a reputation, it, it's uh, Slocum was slow. He didn't get to Gettysburg on the first day when Howard and the 11th Corps and Reynolds and the 1st Corps are fighting the the rebels. Uh, Slocum doesn't show
0: up. Yes, Howard's brother uh, later wrote uh, rather bitterly that uh, he had earned his name Slocum. And unfortunately, I think that's. Well, first, the reason why this happens primarily is because of the massive phenomenon in popular culture. Uh, and with Civil War enthusiasts, that Gettysburg is—you uh, know—millions of people go to Gettysburg. Millions of people uh, write, uh, r- uh, read books about Gettysburg. Uh, it was the central folk. It was one of the central points of Ken Burns' Civil War documentary series, uh, which, of course, over 50 million people have seen. And so, Gettysburg itself is so huge. So, if you're going to encounter Slocum, it's probably going to be in the details of Gettysburg because he just doesn't appear in much detail anywhere else. And unfortunately for Slocum, uh, he was rather off his game both days. Now the second day he uh second and third day he does he does okay. And I want to make sure uh you know, try to make this clear in the biography, I'm not trying don't want to come off sounding like Slocum should now be remembered as the hero of Gettysburg. Uh, because it certainly wasn't anything of that nature, but he does okay. But between the first day, where he definitely is having some problems, and then the second and third day, where he sees heavy action but never in the right places, he fights on Culp's Hill. Well, everybody's focused on what's going on in the Peach Orchard and on the Round Tops, and then later for Pickett's Charge. So people just sort of, I think, tend to relegate See Slocum through that lens and relegate him uh, to one of the lesser generals of Civil War history.
1: So one one War bad history? day is all it takes if it's July first, eighteen sixty-three. Oh yes. Uh, now, what was he doing that day? I mean, you, you give. Should he have moved faster? What, what did he get orders to move fast? What happened exactly?
0: Well, uh, he. Was reacting to the situation as best he could, bearing in mind that he was still uh, overall in his cautious persona. Uh, people uh, tend to think of Slocum sitting around all day while Howard's fighting for his life up at Gettysburg, uh, but the actual time in question is much smaller. Uh, Slocum's corps only had a few only had a few miles to march, and so they went very slowly. And they, by the time they arrived at two taverns, which is the, which is only five miles from Gettysburg, uh, it's already noon. By 3:30, his corps is rapidly on the march heading to Gettysburg. So we're not talking about a full day here; only about three hours that his corps was actually stationary. There's also some evidence to suggest that the hills between Gettysburg and Slocum's line of march caused one of those infamous acoustic shadows uh, that affected. Uh, Joseph Johnston at uh, Seven Pines, or Buell at Perryville, uh, or even Grant at Ayuka. And therefore, what they heard didn't sound like a major battle. A number of, a number of people in Slocum's command said that uh, what they heard sounded like a cavalry skirmish, something that was going on that, that wasn't, uh, wasn't so important. So they get to two taverns, and by the time they get to two taverns, the battle is in its midday lull, and there's just not much to hear. So Slocum's first real indication of what's going on is about 1 p.m. A citizen comes down the pike uh, from Gettysburg and tells him that there's this huge battle going on. Well, Slocum sends a rider to try to find out what's going on, and given that he had about five miles to cover, he'd be gone for at least an hour, probably more, more along the lines of two, to get over the top of the hills and see what was going on. By the time he finds out what's going on, uh, ha- uh, Howard has already sent him one message. In this message, uh, Howard simply says that we're engaged at Gettysburg, and the Army of Northern Virginia is still approaching from the north. Actually, he says, he says York, which is which, which is slightly wrong, of course. Now, people think, of course, well, Slocum, when he when he got this, should have immediately begun marching his troops straight up the Pike. Well, Slocum interpreted this dispatch in light of orders he had gotten from Meade, the also infamous Pipe Creek Circular, where Meade basically says, the same thing as Lee, I don't want to bring on a massive battle now. If you, are, if you encounter, encounter heavy resistance, I want to fall back to this prepared line in Maryland and wait for, uh, wait for Lee to attack. And in addition to that, Slocum had gotten further instructions from Meade re-emphasizing that he did not want to bring on a major battle. The Slocum is assuming that Howard and Reynolds had gotten the Pipe Creek Circular. Well, truth is they hadn't. They didn't know Meade did not want to fight a major battle. And as such, he looks at this dispatch from Howard, and he says, essentially, ah, Howard's engaged, he'll follow orders, he'll step back, uh, and... He'll retreat to my position. So just Howard saying he's engaged does not mean that Slocum is going to immediately march. Uh, and instead, it takes further, uh, further uh, information. His uh, his scout gets back from the uh, scout gets back from his mission, and another message comes from Howard. And the Slocum finally begins to move about th- about three o'clock or three uh, thirty. Unfortunately, since he doesn't know that the, that the battle is lost, he brings his corps up on the far side of Gettysburg way out of the way to try to strengthen their northern flank and just doesn't get there in time for the first day now once he does get
1: there of course his corps holds uh, Culp's Hill he participates in the Council of War and advises me to stay and fight it out and uh, serves serves with with great credit Um, but time is not kind to him nor is time kind to us unfortunately Uh, Brian we're out of time today But I want to thank you for uh, joining me on the show, and I've I've certainly uh, enjoyed talking to you as always and learning about uh, Sherman's Forgotten General.
0: Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it.
1: And listeners, you'll want to get a copy of Sherman's Forgotten General, Henry W. Slocum, by Brian C. Melton. Uh, uh, Very much uh, an interesting look at a a lesser-known general and, and well worth reading. So I hope you'll look at that, and I hope you'll listen again next week to Civil War Talk Radio.